we're here because of music. We are band band. You like Huey Lewis on the news? On the news? I like this song. Hey guys, it's Frankie and it's Misa and we are so excited guys because it is spooky season. Yeah, like officially, officially, like technically we've been, you know, celebrating spooky season since July, I think most of us, but most now of us. it's like, now it's in October and the leaves are changing a little, at least in, you know, <laughs> everywhere else and then in Texas, they're just kind of brown and then dead. And uh, there's actually Halloween stuff in the stores, even though by now it's kind of getting pushed out by Christmas, but whatever. Yeah, I hate that. I feel like if you wait past October 1st, you can't even buy anything Halloween because it's already being like pushed to the side for Christmas. You are totally right. That is exactly why. I think that's why people are always on the hunt for the first few stores with Halloween stuff after summer's over mm-hmm. because as soon as October hits, it's like either slim pickings or it's Christmas. Yeah, it sucks. Like I, I like to buy things, you know, here and there sporadically and it's it's hard to do that when they make my window so short by, you know, pushing it out for Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. But then there's also Looking forward to like, you know, November 1st when everything is like 60% off. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Can't complain too much. So we've been doing a lot of collab episodes lately. Uh, but now that uh, we're at spooky season, we're going to do a regularly scheduled, regularly formatted episode. And today I'm going first. Yay. Yay. Do you know my movie? No, at least I don't think I do. I was trying to figure it out and I can't even decipher like what is on the floor next to the body. It, and of course, my mind is just like in sports mode right now. So I'm like, are they wearing a baseball uniform? Like, I, I see all kinds of different things and I'm like, none of this makes sense. I am way out of touch. Uh, I don't even have a good guess. Like I would just completely embarrass myself. Oh, okay. Well, it's cool because I I wanted to keep it vague and I wanted to throw you off. The thing is, I felt like every scene or screenshot from this film was like a giveaway uh, if you've seen it. So I wanted to pick like a really kind of maybe forgotten quote unquote scene. Like, um, you know, okay, I'm not sure if you saw this. So I originally saw this movie when I was in middle school and I remember I have very, very good memories of the day that I saw this movie. Um, so we were in middle school and uh, it was my birthday. So this was toward like the beginning of the year because my birthday is in September. And I had a birthday party at my house and we had like water balloons and all kinds of crap. And I remember, Frankie, I invited you, but I don't know what you had going on, but you had something else going on. You're the only person I invited who couldn't come. Was that the one when, let's see, if it was in September and we were in middle school, I can't remember what we would have had going on except for that is when my mom had that surgery years ago. Do you remember that? Yes. And I was 
pretty much her caretaker. So that that's the only thing I can think of. That might have been it. I have no idea. I don't. I I think I knew at the time why you couldn't come, mm-hmm. but right now it just escapes me. But it was me, Martha, Jasmine, and Sarah <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we had like water balloon fights, and we brought out the hose, and it was just all kinds of ridiculousness. And then um, at that time, like Avril Lavigne was like super hot shit. And we were all like super big fans of hers. And so we actually had like a little Avril Lavigne karaoke session in the living room. And that was cool. So fun. (laughs) And then uh, we decided like, oh, let's go see a movie. And at the time, the mall really close to me had a theater in it. Uh, I mean, it still does, but it was a different theater. And we decided like, let's all go to a movie or whatever. So my sister drove two of us in her car and her boyfriend drove the other two in his car (laughs) and they drove us to the movies and so me and all my friends sat together and then my sister and like her boyfriend sat somewhere else or whatever and I remember on the way back Avril Lavigne came on the radio and we happened to be like right next to each other in the cars and we happened to be listening to the same station so we rolled the windows down and we're just like fucking screaming fucking skater boy in the streets from car windows (laughs) That is epic. It was so, so funny. Anyway, the movie we went to see was Swim Fan. Oh, okay. Wow. I haven't seen this movie in forever, but I have seen it. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, so I know I'm breaking the rules a little because it's not necessarily like spooky, but it is a thriller and it does have some spooky elements, and so I wanted to go with it. In addition to that, spoiler alert, I am doing a score later on uh, for Spooky Season, so I didn't want to oversaturate with a bunch of scores, and I feel like horror movies are heavily score-driven. Oh, they definitely are. Yeah, I understand that. So I thought this would be a nice little break uh, from uh, a score, which because our next one, should we go ahead and say what our next one, or what our one with Martha is going to be? Oh, oh, that's going to be a fun one. Our first one back together. I'm so excited. Yeah, let's talk about it. Yes. So real quick before I get into my movie, we are going to be recording again next to each other very soon. <gasps> Reunited and it feels so good. I can't and wait. And it'll be the first time we're in the same room recording our podcast together since... Uh, February March March or February yeah 2020 somewhere around there so yeah we've been recording longer apart than we ever did together at this point yeah COVID sucks yeah not only will we be back together side by side and me reunited with my microphone um, but we're also going to have a guest on the show yes we have had a guest once And we are super excited to have our very, very dear friend who has been my friend since middle school. Misa, middle school or elementary school? Middle school. Um, And so middle school. And we are so excited to have a Tim Burton-themed gathering and discussion of movies. I'm so excited. Yes, yes. Even I. We'll be choosing a Tim Burton film and soundtrack to talk about. Believe it or not, there yeah. are two. There are two of his movies that slipped through the cracks when I was younger. 
and I'm excited to talk about it. <laughs> it's really hard to believe that, but I'm so excited. Your movie is awesome. I'm excited for the whole night. I'm excited to just be together in, in real life. Yeah, it'll be cool. It'll be cool. There's definitely a a chemistry that comes with being in the same room with someone during a conversation. And there's not a lag on a computer. So that's what I'm excited about. Oh my gosh, yeah. And like Wi-Fi doesn't even matter. <laughs> I'm I'm super excited for the smaller, the minute details. Yeah, all the things that make life easier when we're together. Yes, so there's that to look forward to. We do have um, one or one or two other movies for spooky season before we get into like our Thanksgiving and winter break stuff. And we are just super excited for what's going to be coming as we get to record together. Cool. So we can get into Swim Fan. Um, this is just a really fun teen drama. It's predictable in a way because, of course, it's formulaic. Um, you know, you kind of see things coming because they're eitherly like so heavily foreshadowed that it's, you know, obvious or you just kind of, you know how these stories go. I think we've all seen Fatal Attraction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So before I go on, some of my sources do include RyanEdwardParish.com, IMDb, uh, the Swim Fan DVD and Commentary, and AllMusic.com. Not a whole lot of sources this time because there's not a whole lot of info on some of these bands. So mine is going to be short and sweet. <laughs> I love it. I also love when we use, like, you know, kind of alt indie bands. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Just so we can yeah. get some recognition because there's some really nice hidden gems in some of these more, like, lesser-known indie films. For sure, and I'm really hoping that you happen to choose one of the songs that I actually really, really love, and I've seen this band several times in real life. Okay, we'll see. Um, I do have, I've chose four, and then I have two honorable mentions, because of course I, I couldn't pick the whole thing, but I would have liked to. <laughs> it's a great soundtrack, top to bottom, really. It really is. It really is. This is a really fun movie. I'm excited that we are starting Spooky Season off. With yes. So, for those of you who may not be familiar with Swim Fan, it was released in 2002. I saw conflicting dates. I'm guessing that the August 19th date would be the select theaters date, and then the September 6th is probably the like nationwide release. Uh, but I am not mm -hmm. sure. It didn't specify. Directed by a man named John Polson. He's also known for a film called Hide and Seek from 2005 as well as episodes of Without a Trace, The Mentalist, Blue Bloods, and most recently, he has directed an episode of Law & Order, Organized Crime, starring Daddy Chris Malone. <laughs> wow, so he's gone to work with him? Mm, he got to see that ass in person. Oh, John. <laughs> Lucky. Lucky son of a bitch. All right. Um, and so, as far as our cast goes, uh, a lot of familiar faces in here. A lot of, I thought, were like rising stars at the time. And I'm not really sure what they're up to now. So, we have Jesse Bradford, who I think everyone recognizes from Bring It On. He's like mm -hmm, the, sure. the brother to Eliza Dushku's character. He is our main man, Ben Cronin. We have Erica Christensen, who plays Madison Bell. Cherie Appleby, she was on Roswell for a long time, I think. Um, and she plays a character named Amy Miller, who is Ben's girlfriend. We have Kate Burton, who is Carla Cronin, Ben's mom. 
Clayne Crawford is Ben's friend, Josh. Jason Ritter, John Ritter's son, is Randy. Kia Goodwin plays Renee. And Dan Hadea, the dad from Clueless, plays Coach mm-hmm. Simpkins. Good cast. Yeah, yeah. So there is a lot of exposition before I get to my first uh, song, but more or less this movie starts off with a guy named Ben. We kind of go through a day in his life. He's a swimmer. uh, He's basically Olympic caliber. And his coach tells him like, hey, for the next eight days, I want you living in that pool because there's going to be scouts from Stanford coming and they're going to be watching you. And so this is when Ben realizes, like, this is a big deal. This is his whole future, which, man, like, I guess being far removed from high school now, it, I forgot how much pressure there was to, like, know exactly what you want to do right after high school. You know what I mean? Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. That is, it's too much pressure. You barely know who you are. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how do you know what you want to do forever? You know? How, you don't. I, I hate that thought process. I, I think we've started to normalize the whole, like, college isn't necessary. College isn't for everyone. Just because you don't go to college doesn't mean you won't be successful. Or just because you don't go to college right away doesn't mean you won't be successful, et cetera. To an extent, yes. But I do still feel like um, high schools make you kind of pick your avenue for what kind of career you want. And then you have to stick with that for your whole high school career. I kind of wish that high schools did the thing where it's like, I've always seen it in movies and TV shows where they give you like an aptitude test or something. And they Mm -hmm. kind of give you an idea for like what you would be best skilled for or something like that. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I wish my high school would have been more involved in like, what I wanted to do in the future or right. whatever. Like, I don't think that I got a whole lot of guidance in that aspect. I, I agree with it to an extent. Um, I just feel like it should be like, okay, this year, you know, you can try this out and you don't necessarily have to start with this. You know, you can do things different each year, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, instead of saying specifically like, okay, you've chosen to have a career in the STEM area, so you can only choose courses in the STEM area for your whole four years. I just, I wish there was more, um, you know, options and experience and like the expectation that like, yeah, this kid may do choir one year and then, you know, do photography or then do a language or then do technology or whatever, you know? Right, right. And that reminds me of uh, the movie Accepted where like Blake Lively is talking about like, oh yeah, well, my major is this, but I wanted to take a photography class, but apparently that photography class is only for people who are majoring in photography and da-da-da-da. And it's like this big, like, just jumping through hoops thing if you even want to try to do something you want to do. Yeah, like, I, what if I wanted to take a class just because I would like that as a hobby? Exactly. Like, hobbies are important. Like, yes, it's great to have a career, but you should also have a hobby that makes you happy because that helps you de-stress. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just, th- this movie just reminded me of how kind of foolish that really is mm-hmm. when you think it about is. it. Like, that's like you're barely 18 and yeah. you're supposed to just kind of shoved out into the real world and immediately know how to do your taxes. <laughs> no, no. They, well, they don't teach that, that's for sure. Yeah, that's bullshit. Your brain isn't even fully developed until you're 25. So I really don't understand the mindset behind you know, go to college right after high school. Like, you're not even a real adult. Whatever, man. It's insane. But 
Any Hooters. Rant over. Yeah, and so we, we kind of get an idea of uh, who Ben is, and uh, he's got these friends, Josh and Randy, and Josh is kind of like his cocky friend, kind of gives him shit a lot, and, you know, he's on this, him and Randy are swimmers too, so Josh is kind of like, you know, oh yeah, the scouts are going to be looking at you, or whatever, and he kind of teases him about it. And so um, while they're all together, they actually bump into, like, the creepy guy at school. And he's this guy that they call Dante. And he just looks like a geek. He's um, He's got, like, weird he, he parted hair and big glasses and mm-hmm. really doesn't seem to talk much. And um, there's rumors that he's crazy. So they're... They don't really bully him. They just kind of stay away from him because they think he's going to snap. <laughs> and um, so then, like, we meet Ben's girlfriend. She's this girl named Amy. And he says stuff like, you know, oh, I I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for you. And so we kind of hear more about his past. That, like, he kind of used to get into, like, drugs and trouble. And, like, the cops kind of know him by now. And... Um, so he's got kind of a bit of a troubled past, and so now he's kind of turned his life around, and he's this, like, accomplished swimmer with a with a really cool girlfriend and friends and all that crap. Madison Bell shows up at school. She's the new girl, and uh, she meets Ben, and mm-hmm. she immediately likes him. And um, Ben also works, like, at a hospital, like, kind of volunteering, and his mom works there as well. And uh, his girlfriend works, like, at a restaurant, like, a seafood restaurant on a boat, which, ugh, disgusting. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't like seafood. And then on top of that, I can't imagine going to a seafood restaurant on a dock and, like, you just smell the hot sea salt water all around you. Yeah. Not appetizing at all. Like, none of it. (laughs) And so, anyway, and it's shaped like a boat. (laughs) That's what I was going to say. The boat is what threw, threw me uh-huh. off. <laughs> it's The restaurant is shaped like a boat. And so, anyway, like, Amy wants her and Ben to get an, uh, an apartment together. She wants to change her college plan so that she can be closer to him at Stanford. And, I mean, it's just a lot. Like, this is just a lot, right? Uh, at the end, like, at, at this point in his life when he has to make all these big decisions. So anyway, um, his friend Josh tells him all about Madison Bell. It turns out Madison is Dante's cousin, and that's who she's staying with because her parents are in Europe. So now the new hot girl is, like, related to the crazy guy. Ben is kind of intrigued by her. He ends up giving her a ride home one day, and she forgets her notebook in his car, so he calls her to give it back, and they go out to eat, and... That's when he's like, I have a girlfriend, and because she's kind of hinting that she likes him. Yeah, she's being flirty. Yeah, she's like, oh, I play cello, and it just helps me escape. But right now, I really like where I am. Mm. And that's when that's when she's like, you're the most handsome, nicest guy in school. Of course, you're not single. Um, he's like, okay, I should take you home. She's like, I'm not ready to say goodnight. So she somehow convinces him to take her to the pool at the school. And I guess since he's like in with the coach and he goes there early, he has keys. So he can just kind of get into the gnat. Um, or the gnat is what we called it. Is that what it's called? <laughs> yeah, that's what we called it too. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, I had a diver boyfriend and he was always at the gnat. So. <laughs> so anyway, they go to the pool. <laughs> and we see her like sitting on the edge and she's watching him like do laps which is interesting. <laughs> and 
she ends up getting in and she's like, oh, I can't swim. And he teaches her, quote unquote, and they end up kissing and they end up fucking. And that's not cool because he has a girlfriend and um, she kind of like. Supposedly has a boyfriend. Oh, yeah. And she supposedly has a boyfriend. Like she told him like, um, oh, I have someone waiting for me in New York. But she doesn't really elaborate aside from like he's a really good baseball player. So they fuck and that's, oh man, it's weird because she's like in the moment she makes him tell her he loves her. Yeah, that's intense. And so he does it because like throughout the film, like so far we've seen that Ben is like such a nice guy. He's a pushover. And so he tells her he loves her. Madison tells him like, oh, I don't want to be a locker room joke. So don't tell anybody. And he's like, yeah, I'm not going to tell anybody, whatever. We see Ben, like, back to his swimming thing, and he's distracted now because all he can think of is her and, like, fucking in the pool. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very obvious that it's affecting his swimming, and his coach is obviously disappointed. And then we realize, like, Amy's going to have a party. Her parents are gone for a week, and so Ben shows up, and Josh is bragging about how great he swam. He's that friend, right? Yeah. And so then, like, Amy, Amy finds Ben, and she's like, hey, come here. I want you to meet someone. And it's Madison. Of course it is. And this really great song comes on in the background called Solutions by Bush. So Madison is, like, smiling at him and she's like oh it's nice to meet you I'm Madison Amy speaks of nothing else and she brushes her hair back and the thing is that like Ben found a little flower at his locker and he assumed that Amy left it there for him so when he gave them to her she was like oh are these for me and when Madison pushes her hair back the flowers are behind her ear so they were from her Mm-hmm. And so Ben doesn't really know what to say. So he's like, I'm going to go to the bathroom. One of the party goers, is, oh, I love this line. One of the party goers says, hey, Ben, I'm doing a video run and your truck is blocking me in. I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to go to Blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> Sign of the times. Oh, such a good time to be alive. Now all we need is each other's login. <laughs> what? I'm sorry. Uh, Amy's like, I'll move it. So then Ben gives her the keys and Ben goes to the bathroom. And when he comes out of the bathroom, this song is still playing. And Madison is standing right outside the door waiting for him. Weird. Yeah. And she's like, your girlfriend's so nice. And so uncomplicated. (laughs) And it's like, you don't know if that's an insult or not. (laughs) Yeah, it's a weird thing to say. Yeah, yeah. And so um, then she's like, I know you're busy tonight, but when can I see you again? And this is a weird question. Like, you're at his girlfriend's party, and you've kind of cornered him in this bathroom. And so he's like, I don't know. Tomorrow's not good. And so uh, he's trying to make an excuse. He's trying to get away from her. And then she's like, by the way, do you have my panties? 
<laughs> and he's like, what? And she tells him, like, I left my underwear in your car. Mm. <laughs> On purpose. The worst. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course she did. So... Solutions is the first track on Bush's 2001 album, Golden State. This and all the songs on the album are solely written by Gavin Rosdale. This was the band's fourth album, and it featured members Nigel Polesford and Dave Parsons for the last time. So they left the band after this album. And when writing for this album, Gavin recalls being seen as a dark, depressed figure. And so in an effort to shed that image, He wrote some more positive themes, and he purposely named the album Golden State because he wanted it to sound warm and positive. The band practiced the songs for five weeks before recording. Rosdale played the songs through a shitty car radio just to make sure that they recorded well. (laughs) Nigel Pulsford did not like the final cut of the album. He says that Pro Tools were overused in the mixing, he says that all life was produced out of it, and it doesn't sound very good. Oh. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I can't speak for the whole album, but I do like this song. It really fits the mood really well. Just with the way that Madison is being so creepy and forward in a way that, like, it makes you uncomfortable because she's switching, like, She went from this didn't happen at all to, like, it happened, and when is it going to happen again, you know? Mm -hmm. And this is when you realize, like, this is going to be a problem. And so some of the lyrics are saying things like, devil you know is back here again, devil is stoned, he's making friends. We move, we break, we're sun, we're shade, you come, you go, we're fast, we're slow. And it's, it's just a nice little steady drum beat as well uh, in the background. I don't know if that's Pro Tools, <laughs> um, but it really kind of gives uh, this mood kind of a different feel. Like it, like it adds to that tension. Like he does feel cornered. He doesn't know what to say to her. And now he's in a really tough situation because she's not going to leave him alone. Right. She's making that real clear. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he ends up stopping Amy from moving the truck because he knows that she's going to find the underwear. So he he goes out and grabs the keys and he does it for her. Um, And so then like Madison starts like obsessively messaging him. And this is a this is continuing to distract him. And she's messaging him on his beeper constantly. And his coach is noticing his coach is getting pissed about it. And so finally one day, like, Ben comes home and Madison is already there looking through photo albums with his mother. <laughs> and it's like, it's her, it's his mom's birthday and Madison brought flowers. Yeah. This part was creepy. Like, how did you know that you went too far? This is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, this is odd. And so, like, She's like, oh, what's the problem? Like, we're friends. Friends are happy when friends come over with flowers. Yeah. And she's she's playing it off like it's so innocent, but it's it's very invasive. Like, she claims he mentioned that it was his mom's birthday soon, but we don't we didn't mm-hmm. see that. Of course, we didn't see the whole car ride or anything or the party, but it's odd. And so he tells her, like, I think you're misunderstanding our relationship. 
you're coming on kind of strong. I have a girlfriend, like, you know, da, 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 da. And so she starts to realize, like, he really doesn't want anything to do with her. That really was a one-time thing. And the movie does this really cool thing where, like, there's these really sharp cuts and this really, like, shrieky violin between them. And it's kind of like we get a look inside her head. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like these these words are flashing in her head and she's processing them. Uh, but because she's a little off, you know, she's reacting in such a way. And it, it, I like when the movie does that. It does that every now and then with her. And so she gets upset and she starts to walk away. And he's like, you're not going to tell anybody about this, are you? And she's like, tell anybody about what? After Madison leaves, uh, the camera shows that Ben's keys are missing. And so then when he's on a computer at the library, Madison sends a photo of herself naked. But, you know, certain bits are covered. And that's when Amy pops up behind him and she's like, hey. And he's like desperately trying to get it off the screen, which, you know, back in the day. It didn't go away so easily. (laughs) And it took forever to download, too. Yeah, so you felt like parts of it coming in. Yeah, yeah. She tries to like say like, oh, my parents, you know, my parents are gone. So why don't you come over? He's like, no, I have work. And he blows her off basically and says like, I have work. I don't know if this is because, like, he was just caught so off guard. He was just trying to say something. But, like, he doesn't accept her invite, and she feels neglected. Mm -hmm. From there, we go into this scene at the pool, and this really kind of haunting song cups up, and it's called Cave by Celebrity. So we see the guys swimming. And uh, when Ben gets to the end, we see Madison is standing right over him. So as he pops up out of the water, he sees her and he kind of like floats back. And she's in like this leather pencil skirt and she's just standing there in a power pose looking down at him. And then she wanders away from him and goes up to Josh and they start making out in front of him. Yeah, it's weird. It's interesting because she straight up told him earlier, like, I'm not interested in Josh because Ben tried to tell her, like, Josh would kill to sit where I am. Um, And so obviously she has changed her mind about Josh one way or another. Mm -hmm. And then um, Josh goes into the locker room and she stays where she is to, like, wait for him. And this one, like, Randy gets out of the pool. He's like, hi, I'm Randy. And he's like, I don't know, these, all these boys are like fawning over this girl, like this fresh meat. And uh, he's like, hi, I'm Randy. She's like, yeah, yeah, Josh told me about you. He's like, he did? No, he didn't. She's like, yeah. <laughs> Jason Ritter oh is so fucking adorable. He is adorable. It's just so fucking adorable, just like his dad. Um, <laughs> and so then uh, finally, like, Ben kind of looks over at Madison. He's just casually like, hey, so you and Josh, that's cool. And Madison just kind of glares at him and looks away. Not happy. So, yeah. So, Cave by Celebrity. Um, Not a whole lot of info on the song, and there wasn't a whole lot of info about the band. So these are some, uh, this is uh, one of many indie bands on this soundtrack. Uh, What I did find was also thanks to Spotify, which I don't think I mentioned earlier. So thank you, Spotify, for being there for me. (laughs) Um, 
Celebrity was formed in 2001. Founding members included Lance Black, Jesse Fine, and Matt Fine. They recorded their EP entitled Sleep with the help of producer Mark Nash. Fun fact, Mark Nash plays the cymbals and hi-hat on the Sixpence None the Richer's self-titled album. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So eventually the band added guitarist Ryan Parrish, formerly of a band called Hope's Fall, and soon the group were signed to Doghouse Records. This song, Cave, was featured on their first album, Love Sick. Ryan Parrish's website says that he was a songwriter for this band, but it's unclear if he wrote all the songs or if he is one of many songwriters from the album. So the album Lovesick, which Cave was featured on, was released in 2003. The album was written and recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Book House. Madison confronts Ben about ignoring her, and she's like, every time I'm with Josh, I think of you. And he's like, okay, <laughs> like this needs to stop. Like I have a lot going on. I'm trying to drop you. And <laughs> she's not taking that very well. She's like, you told me you love me. He's like, you told me to say that. Mm-hmm. And then she just kind of stares at him and he walks away from her. And then something gets fucked up at his job when he's distributing medication and they have to fire him. And he is convinced that she did something, that maybe she was following him and fucked with his cart or something like that. But they have to fire him because he was supposed to keep his eye on it at all times. Mm -hmm. So he finds her and he's like, you need to cut this out. He chokes her. He's like, you need to stop whatever you're doing. This is serious. Someone could have died. Like, I'm done. And so that's when he visits Amy at work. Yeah, this is... This is a hard part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he rushes to Amy's job. And she's working. And he's like, hey, can you take a break? She's like, no, I can't take a break. And he's like, okay, well, I'll wait till you get off. She's like, I'm not off until 1. And the swim meet is tomorrow. So by now, like, the eight days have passed. And the big day is tomorrow. And he's dealing with all this shit. And he's like, whatever. Like, I, I need to talk to you. And she's like, you need to go home and get rest. And so she tells him, like, why don't we skip first tomorrow and we'll go for a drive and talk? And he's like, yeah, okay, that's cool. So, like, he leaves. He tells her he loves her. And Madison watches him from her car in the parking lot. I go. Ooh, so you just know what happened. Um, Great foreshadowing. As we cut to the next day, this really beautiful song starts up called Slow Down by Wayne. Wayne, not the heavy metal band, by the way, (laughs) in case you were curious. I was. Um, So it it is the next day, and Ben is walking through the hallways of school, and people seem to be staring at him, Mm -hmm. and he's starting to notice that people are kind of eyeing him for some reason, and he doesn't get it. And so finally, he walks up to his friends, and they're kind of over by their lockers, and we see Randy and Key, and uh, I keep calling her Kia because that's her real name. Uh, we see Randy and Renee, and they're with Amy, and we don't see Amy's face right away. Her back is to us, but Ben approaches her, and we just know that she heard mm-hmm. uh, because obviously Madison 
was stalking and waiting to tell her. So Amy turns around and looks at Ben and she's in tears. And it's so sad because this girl has been so sweet. Like Amy is like such a model girlfriend. Like she's been there for him. She supports him. She cares about him. She wants him to get rest. She's proud of him. Like she's just got tears down her face. She looks at him and she even lets him off kind of easy. She slaps him and walks away. She walks off and uh, Renee says something to him. We don't really hear it. And then Randy just kind of just looks disappointed in his friend and, you know, tries to tell him like to come on to go to class. Uh, But Ben just watches Amy walk away and then he runs after her. He makes it to her in the parking lot and he stops her and he's like, wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And she just looks at him and she's like, why? And he doesn't have an answer for her. And so, he, yeah, he's like, he doesn't know why he did it. It was just like in the moment thing. It was, you know, whatever. And so he watches her leave. And then we see behind him, like up on the second story in a window, Madison is watching everything go down. And later on, we see Ben and he's at lunch and he's sitting alone. And this is a contrast from earlier when he was, like, with Amy and all his friends and, you know, just, like, being teenagers. And now he's, like, sitting by himself. And he looks over his shoulder and he sees Dante, who is Madison's cousin. And he's just kind of, like, watching Ben. And, you know, we see that, like, this is taking a toll on Ben. Like, everything is getting fucked up. And it's kind of his fault. Yeah. And so as the song kind of fades out, we get to the point where it is time for the big swim meet and competition where the Stanford scouts are going to be watching. So, again, I don't have a whole lot of info. Uh, there wasn't a lot on this Wayne. I'm sure there's, there would have been plenty of uh, info on the heavy metal guys because uh, the first thing that I read about this band, Wayne, was... Not to be confused with Wayne the Heavy Metal Band. <laughs> so I think they get that a lot. I'm sure I'm sure they do because they spell it the same in everything. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but this Wayne is from Birmingham, Alabama, which I, I, I doubt the heavy metal band is from. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Okay, cool. Um, and they were formed in 1997. Founded by a man named Michael Swan and Rodney Reeves. Other members include Justin Johnson and John Hornsby. The band was heavily influenced by the likes of R.E.M., The Beatles, Neil Young, and Elton John. Uh, They developed a small regional following in the 90s and eventually in the early 2000s joined EMI Records. Never heard of them, but that's cool. And that's all you're going to hear about them from me. Oh wow! Yeah, no, you weren't joking. No, I'm serious. Like, I found three different sources on info info for them, and all three of them had the same paragraph. And honestly, there was more words and info about who inspired them than who they really were. Dang. Yeah, yeah. So not a whole lot on Wayne, uh, but I really like this song. Um, this kind of has like a 
a bit of a country-esque style to it. Um, the singer, he kind of does this thing where he's singing and then he goes a little high-pitched, kind of a la Dave Matthews, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would compare it to. Uh, and so I like it. I, I think it was kind of perfect for this really somber scene where like, you know, either way, you know that this is a tough day for Ben and then you realize like, it just got worse because he didn't even get to be the one to tell her. Yeah. And he really wanted to. Uh, the problem was that he waited too long to say it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very fitting song. Yeah. Yeah. So it will be on the blog and playlist. Exciting. Um, right before the swim meet, Coach goes up to Ben and says, you tested positive for steroids. This girl is talking up his life. Ben can't believe it. He's like, I don't take steroids. That's ridiculous. And the thing is, earlier, uh, when he turned in his, when he was about to take his urine test, he went out the door as Josh went in. And Josh just kind of smiled because he had also heard about Madison and him fucking in the pool. Mm -hmm. So Ben immediately accuses Josh of helping her fuck up his urine test. And Josh is like, you're crazy, fuck you, whatever. And Ben gets disqualified from the competition. And the scouts don't even stay. They leave. Awful. Waste of their time. And Josh wins. Yep. Ben's mom's like, are you on drugs again? He's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what you would think. She's like, well, this is how it started. You're lying. You're fucking up in school. Like, more allusions to, like, his past. And he was a bad boy. And, like... He got in trouble a lot, and so she thinks maybe he's reverting back to that for some reason. And so we get this scene where um, this scene, when I first saw this movie, I remember thinking, like, this is not what I thought it was. So uh, in the very next scene, um, there's this really beautiful song playing called Falling from Grace by the Gentle Waves. We see Madison in her car. They're kind of parked by like a lake, um, kind of like a lover's lane looking-esque lake, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, she's heavily making out with this guy whose face we can't really see very well. And like she's calling him Ben. And at first, I think the viewers are supposed to like think for a split second, like he went ahead and succumbed. To her and that yeah and that he went ahead and was like oh I guess like I lost everything else might as well go for the one person who wants me like I think for a split second you're supposed to believe that that is Ben but it turns out she's making out with Josh and he heard her call him Ben (laughs) so he stops like he, he gets away from her and she's like what's wrong he's like um my name's not Ben And she's like, I, I know that, Josh. And she's like, you know, trying to comfort him. And he's like, it's all true, isn't it? Like, you really are trying to hurt him. Like, he doesn't want you, and now you want to get back at him for it. Like, he would never do steroids. He doesn't need them. And so he gets out of the car. He's like, whatever, screw you. And she starts screaming at him. And she's like, come back. And she's calling him Josh. And then she calls him Ben. <laughs> 
And it's just, it's ridiculous. So we, by now we know for sure, because we see more of those shots, those flashy shots with the screeching. And we hear her put these sentences together in her head. And we hear Ben say her name. And we hear Ben say, I have to tell you something. And we hear Ben say, I love you. Just totally making it up. (laughs) And she's just, yeah, she's just taking bits of him and piecing them together the way she wants. Like, she's Mm -hmm. unhinged. Yeah, she's hearing what she wants to hear. Exactly, exactly. And she's excluding the things that she doesn't want to hear. So, not well. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) the whole time that this uh, scene is going on, uh, Falling from Grace by the Gentle Waves was playing. In re-watching this movie recently and tuning into that music as it was playing, because it's very faint in the background, it reminds me a lot of the Phantom of the Opera song. Oh. Uh, Sing Once Again With Me, that part. Yeah. Sing once again with me A strange duet My power There are elements of this song that reminded me of that. And so at first, like when I wasn't exactly listening to the music, I wondered, like, did someone cover a song from Phantom of the Opera? Um, but no, it is not a cover. And from from what I gathered, it's not even a sample. It just sounds very similar to me. And so I'll put both on the blog, and you guys let me know if I'm crazy, too. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear. <laughs> to compare. Yeah. Um, so Falling from Grace is not only the name of the song, but also the EP it was released on by Isabel Campbell former member of Belle and Sebastian. So this EP was released in September 2000. Isabel Campbell is a Scottish singer-songwriter and cellist. Her career began as a part of Belle and Sebastian, and she was with them from 1996 to to 2002. When she left Belle and Sebastian, she wanted to pursue a career as a solo artist. She began releasing solo work while she was still officially with the band, but once she officially left, she was creating a lot more as a solo artist. First, she went by The Gentle Waves, uh, but then she eventually switched to her own name, and that's what she goes by now. She has since released multiple albums on her own, and she continues to make music and collaborate with various artists. Awesome. Um, that's it for my songs. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that's... That does it for the music portion as far as the ones that I chose. Um, there is a bit more movie left. Um, I I can go through it really quick. I don't know if I should. I mean, I guess I could just go ahead and spoil it. Yeah. Um, ben finds out that this person waiting for Madison in New York is actually her uh, comatose boyfriend whose name is Jake Donnelly, and he is on a respirator. Uh, surrounded by all of his trophies, his letter jacket, and photos of him and Madison together. Evidently, they were in a car accident where she wore her seatbelt and he didn't. But considering how vindictive and manipulative she's been through this film, you kind of wonder if they were together or if she kind of set him up and maybe she got mad at him, purposely causing it. Like, we don't know, right? Yeah. But we're suspecting, like, Something bad happened because of her. 
And she was behind it. Yes. And ironically, at the same time, we have more to, su more to support this theory because as Amy is driving to work, Madison runs her down with Ben's car. So uh, she basically tries to kill this bitch. And mm -hmm. um, Ben and Dante end up working together to trick Madison and they get her arrested. She escapes the cops and she kidnaps Amy and she takes her to the pool where her and Ben fucked. And she throws her in the pool while she's handcuffed to a chair. So Ben has to save Amy while he's thwarting off Madison. And when they met, it was because Madison needed help with her locker and her bobby pin got it unlocked. And turns out Ben still has that bobby pin, so he manages to uncuff Amy and save her. But since Madison can't swim and he yanks her into the pool, they let her drown and she dies. It's intense. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, yeah. I feel like uh, a movie like this today would have ended with like the villain having an open-ended you know, future, like maybe she ends up in a psych ward, but she will find a way out or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but this was very final. Like they straight up drown yeah. her. <laughs> I'm sorry. Horrifying. I, that's like, I would hate to drown. Oh, it's, my, it's one of my fears. I do not want to die by drowning. Oh no. Oh no. And I admit like, Watching her drown, she's so good. Like Erica Christensen said on commentary, like it was difficult to drown because she can swim. Mm -hmm. And then she's there's always that concern of like if you're doing it so well, you actually start to drown and nobody notices. Yeah, oh god, I didn't think about that. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. But of course, they had lifeguards on set and you know everything like that, so everything was fine. But yeah, there is that fear, and I can't swim, so I am terrified of ever drowning like the sea if you ever like whenever there's those videos of like a really angry sea and like you just see the ocean the giant waves and shit like fuck no fuck imagine being lost at sea that's horrifying no horrifying and they never find you and you're just a part of the abyss oh yeah because i mean there's so many miles and miles that we haven't even experienced of the ocean because we can't get down there no mm -mm terrifying yeah yeah so um yeah so the movie ends madison dies uh ben is no longer a swimmer and him and amy kind of drive off into the sunset together uh in i guess what would be considered a more open ending we don't know if they're together we don't know what they end up doing for college but it looks like they're gonna be okay <laughs> yes end of movie Good choice. Yay. Honorable mentions include Too Much Too Soon by Llama and Everything by Pacifier. Okay. Did I not choose your song? You did not, but I don't remember where it played in the movie. I was trying to remember and, like, look it up, um, but I can't find it, and I think I'm just not typing it in right, like, wording it correctly. So the song that I like is Black by Seven Dust. Oh, okay. And I've seen them um, like four times in concert. You know what? I'm just going to have to watch it again to figure out where it is. Um, but yeah, it's it's somewhere in there. Cool, cool, cool. Well, sorry I didn't pick it this time, but... <laughs> no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. 
Um, you chose some great songs, though. Yay. Thanks, hon. And uh, they will all be on the blog and on the playlist. And now it's Frankie's turn. Yay. I'm Yay. super excited to do this movie. Um, and I know, uh, Misa, did you have any guesses for my clue? Uh, yes, I did. Um, I'm feeling pretty confident about what I think it is. Um, but I can share my thought process when I first saw it. <laughs> um, yes, please. So from what you sent, it looks like a very warm hue, uh, like at a cornfield. I think, mm-hmm. and it uh, looks like it's kind of been disturbed a little. Uh, I'm not looking at it right now, but I'm thinking from memory. And the very first thing that I thought of, like even though I knew this wasn't a possibility because I didn't think that you would go TV show in Spooky Season right away, but the first thing I thought of was the Scarecrow Walks at Midnight Goosebumps episode. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so fun. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Um, And then for a split second, I thought maybe signs. But, like, I'm pretty confident that I know every frame of the movie signs, and that doesn't match. No. So uh, the only other thing I could think of is scary stories to tell in the dark. And you would be correct. Yes. I'm super excited to be talking about... The movie, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, that is an adaptation of the beloved books that Alvin Schwartz gave us in the 80s. And I had the privilege of reading in my elementary school library (laughs) with the amazing illustrations by Stephen Gamble. I remember loving these books the second I found them in the library and and then I went through the process of like, how are these even allowed to be in our library? Because they were very different than the other books. And I was so grateful to have someone write like this little anthology of all these awesome one to two page little horror story type things. So great fond memories. Um, for those of you who have not read them, this is a three book anthology that Alvin wrote in the 80s. Um, and they are more scary scary stories to tell in the dark, more scary stories to tell in the dark, and scary stories three, more tells to chill your bones. Um, and they are stories that Alvin um, took from folklore and myths and other influences and put them all together um, in an anthology. And it kind of bounced around for years to be turned into a movie. Um, it was talked about with like an indie director in the early 2000s. And then um, finally, uh, Guillermo del Toro, who produced it, uh, took the book and asked the Hagman brothers to adapt the book and the screen story into the movie. Um, And we got this amazing 2019 film that was released right before my birthday. So yay. It was super appropriate. Now, I will say the movie is very different in certain aspects. The Hagman brothers and Guillermo obviously weren't going to be able to make this movie um, in like an anthology. That's not how they the vision was. And so what they did was they created one main character with her friends 
to go through the book that would be um, writing itself. And we got a lot of the same stories that were in the first three books. I love the way, I love the creativity behind it, but what I love the most is how the villains or the monsters in the story are so very close to the original art that um, Stephen drew for the books. And that was one of the things that drew me into reading the books when I was younger. I don't know if that was the same for you, Misa. I didn't really take to these books as much as my peers did. Not not that they weren't appealing or anything like that. I just, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but I do remember them. They were always like on the thing on the chalkboard, like available for you to just kind of pick up when you had like 30 minutes of reading time or whatever the fuck it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do, obviously everybody remembers the art. Like if, even if you didn't read the books, you know, the art, you recognize it, you know, exactly where it's from, who drew it. And uh, the art stuck out more than anything else. Like, if anything, I think I flipped through the photos and the images more than I actually read the stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the art was really just that cool. It was so detailed and dark. And I don't know, like, being a kid and, and having access to that book kind of made you feel like you were reading something you weren't supposed to read. Yeah, yeah. And I love that you said that, like, even though it was detailed and dark, like, it's still very simple. I don't know how to describe it like correctly, but it's, it's very simplistic and still it's so well done. Um, and so I love that they stay true to those monsters in the story. Um, so like I said, this movie came out in 2019. Um, it is adapted from the books. Guillermo produced it and it was directed by Andre Overdahl, I always say his name wrong, I'm sorry, um, he is not from the U.S., and he is known for some movies, I honestly have not seen any of his other movies, but um, some of the mo- more popular ones are Troll Hunter and The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Oh, I have seen The Autopsy of Jane Doe. How is that one? It's a slow burn, kind of creepy, couple jump scares. Uh, I think you'd be able to handle it. Okay. All right. I may have to check that one out. It got really- No clowns. No clowns. Perfect. Okay. Both actually had pretty good reviews. Um, so I'm, I'm interested just because I do love the way that he directed this film with like the sharp turns and everything that just adds to the appeal of horror or scary movies, if you will. Um, this film did do pretty well. It was directed on a budget of $28 million and it grossed $106 million. Um, there is a wide variety of like new actors, young actors in this film um, that got their first start in movies. And then it did have a couple of other people who I've heard of, but they're not like big, big actors, if you will. Um, we have... Zoe Coletti as Stella Nichols, Michael Garza as Ramon, Gabriel Rush as Augie, Austin Zajur as Chuck, Natalie Ganzorn as Ruth, and Austin Abrams as Tommy. Police Chief Turner is Gil Bellows, and Sarah is played by Kathleen Pollard. And those are some of the more important characters. Uh, at this point, it hasn't really won 
anything. Um, it is up for nomination for Best Horror Film for the Saturn Awards as well as Best Makeup. And both of those accolades are still pending. Interesting. So even like after two years after its release, it can still win awards? Apparently. I didn't know that. Um, maybe it's different for Saturn Awards. Okay. I'm not truly familiar with the protocol for Saturn Awards. And I, I'll be honest, I didn't look mm-hmm. it up. Okay. But I do know the the makeup and the effects of getting all the monsters and everybody ready, um, that was a really big process. So I can definitely see why they would be nominated in that area. All right. So we've got our background information and I'm going to just go ahead and jump in. So our music is going to be a mix of regular songs as well as the score songs that were created for this film. And um, the original score was composed by Marco Beltrami, a name that we are quite familiar with here on Soundtrack City because he did help with certain other movies such as Scream, Um, The Faculty, Resident Evil, A Quiet Place. He's also done different action movies like Terminator, Live Free or Die Hard, World War Z, And he's also done some of my favorite superhero movies, Hellboy, Wolverine, and Logan. Um, And he's a really big friend and longtime collaborator with Wes Craven. So, you know, he's very well loved in the horror genre. So, yeah, we've heard of him before. Um, And he worked with a newbie composer, Anna Drubich. And um, we got a really, really awesome score that I had a really hard time picking just a couple songs from because I enjoy the score so much from this film. And I don't know if you've listened to it, Misa, or if you pay, paid attention to it. I didn't even ask you. Have you seen this movie? Yeah, I have seen this movie. What sucks is that, like, when I did see this movie, I saw it in theaters, and for some reason, the theater I was in was having audio issues. And so everything was really faint, even the previews. And I had to, like, go tell the manager twice, like, that I couldn't hear anything. And they had to come and try to fix it twice. And so, like, at one point, I think there's a scene where the girl and Ramon are in her room and he's talking about how he's a draft dodger or something like that. And, like, I didn't hear any of that because they were fucking with the audio and it never got better. Oh, that does suck. But I faintly heard Donovan's season of The Witch in the beginning. And that's the only thing I remember for sure. Awesome. Well, yes, and that is definitely going to be on our list of songs. So I know I had to pay homage to Misa's Donovan because that was her first. Such a good (laughs) episode. My boy Donovan. (laughs) I love it. I love it. All right. So just jumping in, we start off right away. We hear um, the Her Song or Sarah's theme. And we hear one of our characters say, stories heal, stories hurt. If we repeat them often enough, they become real. They make us who we are. They have such power. This I learned on the very last autumn of our childhood. And we hear the song in the background. And we also see the um, camera pan. And we get to see the whole entire start of the town. Um, The main focus in this song is the strings. We hear the bells in the background that bring this kind of haunting, chilling sound. Um, It's very, very quiet though. And 
very discreet because it's not the main focus. What I love about the fact that they included the bells is that it reminds you, or at least in my opinion, kind of like that haunting spirit of Sarah is always there. And even though we're focusing on everything, like they're never gone. There is a timpani roll, low low notes of brass, and then it gives us this very, very fast, crazy mix of all the instruments together that give us this overall angry emotion. Um, And it sets the tone for the whole movie. We immediately go into Donovan, Season of the Witch. And we see the town. We see that it's 1968. It's in Mill Valley, Pennsylvania. We hear on the radio that it is Halloween. And this is just a great kind of montage with some intros to all of our characters. Um, We see all of the typical 60s, like Nixon photos, um, because it's during an election time. We see people riding bikes, people getting accepted into the draft. Um, All of this is going on while this awesome song is playing in the background. We've heard about Donovan before, but I'm going to go ahead and touch base on him again. Uh, Donovan or Donovan Phillips Leach is a, did I say that right? Leach? I suck. You know what? He goes by Donovan. Disregard. He is a Scottish singer, songwriter, and guitarist. Um, and he developed a very eclectic and distinctive style that blended lots of different um, music genres together that include like folk, pop, psychedelic rock, as well as calypso or world music. Um, he has lived in Scotland, um, for quite some time and he's known for a lot of his different records. Um, most notably is our hurdy gurdy man. Uh, also catch the wind colors, universal soldier and mellow yellow. He is kind of like a, a John Lennon style with his finger picking guitar. Um, and so that really got him noticed when he first came out. The song Season of the Witch was released on his third studio album, Sunshine Superman. Um, This song is credited to Donovan, even though there was some collaboration with Sean Phillips, who also claimed authorship. Um, So this was released in September 1966, which is a little bit different than the movie since it comes out in 1968. And they were saying, you'll enjoy this new song. So that's not totally correct. So there's some errors with that time right there. Um, Season of the Witch is just such a groovy, like psychedelic song. Um, It's very like fluid with its instruments. It's very trippy. It's still like popish, but it's got this very dark foreboding like atmosphere. Um, And it is perfect for setting the tone that we're going to be talking possibly about witches and that it is Halloween. This song does have quite a few covers um, where they did kind of their own rendition. And those include Jilly Driscoll, Al Cooper, Terry Reed, Vanilla Fudge, Dr. John with the Blues Brothers Band, Joan Jett and the Black Hearts 
on her album Naked, and of course, Lana Del Rey. And I will be covering that song later in this episode. So we see again, everyone is getting ready for Halloween. We are introduced to some of our characters and we are focused in on Stella. She, we see her drive into her house on her bike. She gets groceries for her dad. And then someone is calling her on her walkie talkie. And we see that it is her two friends. And they're like, come out with us. Let's go trick or treating. Like, it's not about candy. Um, they are apparently trying to get payback on one of our other characters, Tommy. And Stella finally gives in and decides to dress up and we see them out and about trick-or-treating. So we see them trick-or-treating and they are anxiously awaiting the arrival of Tommy, who every year apparently steals all their candy and has tormented them pretty much for their entire lives. They are correct that he's going to drive by and do it again this year. But they decide that they're going to trick him. And so what they do is they have like a bag full of dog shit and other things. They, he uh, and his friends steal the candy. Unknowingly, Chuck, one of our other characters, who's with Stella, um, his sister, Ruth, is in the car on a date with Tommy and his friends, which is a really weird like gang bang date thing. I don't know. It's an awkward vibe. Um, and so they are completely taken off guard when the bag is filled instead of candy with dog shit and underwear. And then to make it better, Chuck throws a, another bag of dog shit into the car on fire, causing Tommy to crash. And this is like his beloved car. So Tommy is pissed. And of course, being in the 60s, he drives around with a wooden bat because who doesn't at that time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he immediately starts chasing all three of our main characters. Um, that includes Chuck, Augie, and Stella. And they run into an awesome drive-in theater. I wish we could have gone to like a nostalgic real-time drive-in movie, but you know, we are too young for that. And they get into the car with a total stranger to hide from Tommy and his goons. In the car, they are introduced to Ramon, who is apparently just driving through town. Chuck, who is extremely nosy, starts asking questions, and they learn not much because Ramon is kind of secretive. We do learn that Chuck does not know how to shut up, and that Augie is a little pristine, and that Stella... Definitely has a thing for Ramon, who is very obviously Hispanic compared to the rest of the all-white cast. He is then verbally assaulted by Tommy, who finds them. Tommy and them get in trouble. And then Stella finally says, you know what? Since you saved us, how would you like to go see a real haunted house? This is when we get a lot of our background info on Sarah. Sarah Bellows and her entire family as they are walking Ramon to the house they talk about um how the Bellows family kind of put the town on the map because of their mills and that Sarah there's lots of different stories about her but basically she was locked away because there was something grotesquely wrong with her and the family never let her go outside there's no pictures of her and she was accused of killing lots of children and then eventually hanging herself once they are in the house 
Chuck and Augie are goofing around and scaring each other because, you know, haunted house and Halloween. And Stella and Ramon are looking around. They eventually find Sarah's room. At the same time, we are taken to Chuck, who is hiding in a closet. And then all of a sudden, the room changes. And we see this very old lady with a dog. And then they stand in front of Chuck. Chuck screams, runs out. Ramon and Stella have found Sarah's like locked away hidden room. So they call them down. Chuck is freaking out. He's like, we need to leave. We need to leave. And this is when we realize that Tommy has followed them into the house and he locks them into that room. This entire time, we are hearing this awesome haunting violin holding this really, really long, sharp note with these backgrounds of French horns that are building up with really slow anticipation. We get slow bass drums hit every four notes and they're very, very deep, low tones. This track also has a lot of synth layered on top of the orchestra, giving it this really eerie, almost vocal quality. Um, and this song is called Sarah's Room. It is the perfect song for the scene because it matches the whole darkness of the house and then also the creepiness of finding a hidden room that housed someone that was literally locked away for her entire childhood and was also accused of killing children. Then it gets even better. As they are stuck in the room, Stella, in her infinite wisdom, says, Sarah Bellows, tell me a story because she finds Sarah's book. And then all of a sudden, this black swirl appears and unlocks the door. None of them notice this at this time, though. Um, and so then they're free. None of them have noticed this black swirl, of course. They're just grateful to be out of the dark room. And when I say it's dark, it's like there's no windows, no anything. It's like total torture. And it's hidden behind a weird cabinet. Um, basically, what do they call those? Like a, a hidden or faux room? I don't know, secret room, a yeah. hidden passageway? Yeah, or? pretty much, yeah, like a hidden passageway, completely enclosed. There's literally nothing in there, and there's no lights in there. So they kept her in the dark, which is crazy. Um, so all of the kids come out, um, and they are walking back to the car where Ramon has parked, but his car has been completely vandalized. Stella says, come back with me, and you can sleep on my couch. Everyone goes their own ways except for Stella and Ramon, and Stella gives Ramon his blankets. He goes down to the basement, and then she pulls out Sarah's book, who she had taken without anyone noticing. Stella is flipping through Sarah's book, and as she's flipping through, she's seeing lots of different, just very short stories, and she's kind of reading over them, um, and she flips to a page, and it's empty. So she flips a couple more and she sees a bunch of empty pages and she flips back. And then all of a sudden there is a story and it's called Harold. She thinks and she's like, put that one there. Like we see her really pondering this. And then she takes her thumb across and rubs it over the title. And she realizes that this is fresh ink. Our camera immediately pans to a cornfield where we see a drunk Tommy coming home. He's forgotten to do his chores. He gets into it with his mom and tells him like, go do what you're supposed to do. 
Um, and as he walks by, he um, sees the scarecrow, Harold, who he has an infinite hate for. Um, he throws an egg at him and says, eat shit, Harold. He's drunkenly walking through the empty cornfields, getting his eggs from the chickens. And then everything gets really, really silent. And Tommy starts to kind of walk a little bit faster. And then he realizes that Harold is following him. He tries to run and Harold, even though he's a scarecrow, is somehow just as fast or maybe because Tommy's drunk, I don't know. Um, and he catches up with him. Tommy tries to stab him and he's a scarecrow, doesn't do much. So Harold takes the pitchfork out and stabs Tommy, who now is starting to throw up hay and then his entire body goes to this morphing stage where you see him turn his hair like Harold's and his face turns into what Harold's is. And then all of a sudden, Tommy is now replacing Harold as the Scarecrow. Terrifying. It really is. This is a really creepy one. And Harold is impeccably done. They did so well with this monster. And I want to say they used very limited CGI with the monsters. They created the costumes. They had actors inside the costumes. And they tried really hard to use limited CGI to give it the true eeriness. Um, and it took a lot of a lot of time and a lot of effort. And I appreciate those small things because they mean a lot in the end. Yeah. I'll always appreciate practical effects over CGI. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so this – and the makeup is just impeccable. I know you've talked a lot about that from Miss Doubtfire even. Like just the makeup is fantastic. It's really, really cool how they did that. Um, in fact, I have a video for you to include on the blog about that because I was just so taken aback by all the process for it. Um, but during this whole time, we are listening to the score Harold, and this song is centered around the guitar and banjos. It is in 6-8 instead of 4-4 four, four time, which gives it kind of a swing. Um, there's constant 16th notes, which are really fast. Um, and it also has layered sounds of like a drum that sounds like shoes running. And it's perfectly timed with Tommy running away from Harold. Um, the 6-8 is important for this song because it creates this running motion like your body naturally swings and you hear it in the rhythm. Um, we do hear some strings that have a really chromatic walk up. Um, and that's when they kind of crazily go up and build this crescendo. And that gives you this immense, like, <gasps> something's about to happen. And that is right when Tommy turns and see that Harold is behind him. And I, I love that they timed it that way. Um, and then towards the end, it has almost a marching sound as Tommy is turning into our new scarecrow. Um, and they also show Harold marching up to Tommy as he is transforming into the scarecrow. Our strings do another chromatic rise and then they instantly drop out and then suddenly everything stops and we are taken to the next day only to assume that Tommy is now our scarecrow. We 
really, really cool song. In an interview that I watched, I love that they specifically chose certain instruments to focus on for each different monster. I thought that was really, really creative. So now our characters have realized Tommy wasn't at school like he normally is, torturing people. And um, Stella's kind of freaking out because, you know, there's a lot going on with the school. There's a lot going on with Augie. She tries to tell them and they're like, I can't believe you took that book. And so she's feeling a little guilty, especially after Tommy's not there. Her and Ramon go check on Tommy and that's when they see the scarecrow who is in fact wearing exactly what Tommy had on the night before, including his Letterman jacket. And it looks really, really aged. So it's kind of faded. Um, it's it's a really cool image. Um, seeing all of this, Stella takes the book back to the bellows. She says, I'm sorry to Sarah. And she thinks all will be well. It is not, of course. It is not. And the book comes back to her house. And as she is looking through the book, she realizes that a story begins writing itself. Ramon is with her, so she is not by herself witnessing this. She frantically tries to rip the page out as Ramon starts reading it, and that's when they realize that Augie's name is in this book, or August. Um, they try to page him or call him. Ooh, that was the wrong word. You can't page someone on a walkie-talkie. Wrong era. <laughs> she tries to walkie him. Is that what it's called? What do you... Uh contact him via walkie-talkie i guess there we go thanks for making that sentence make sense <laughs> she tries to contact him the walkie-talkie um and he says oh i'm eating and they're like don't eat anything don't eat anything because as they're reading the story um it is about a boy who found a big toe in the ground and they think oh this would be so good in my stew because that's a normal thought process whatever. <laughs> this one was always weird to me. I don't know who thinks that. And then Ramon starts to read it as the corpse is walking around. Who has my toe? And Augie's like, there's no one here. I know this story. He's like unbothered. Then he takes a bite of his stew and he realizes that there is in fact a fucking toe in his stew. That he's eating cold, by the way. I wanted to throw that in there because that was so weird to me. Who eats cold stew? Ugh, weird, yeah. Yeah, like totally weird. So now he's freaking out. He grabs a walkie and he's like, what happens next? And they're like, go hide. And he's freaking out. He hides under his bed. We see this amazingly tall, skinny, disfigured corpse walking around with a missing toe. And she ends up in front of the bed where August is hiding. He is trying to be super silent. And then all of a sudden, her feet disappear. He thinks all is clear. And he starts to crawl out, only to be pulled back all the way into the wall as he disappears into the darkness. And all we see are his fingernails literally scratching into the wood floor. Mm. And that makes that I think that hurts me more because I just imagine like how hard are you scratching for it to leave marks on the floor, right? Ugh. I am so squeamish when it comes to nails in horror. 
Mm-hmm. Whether it's they're scratching against a wall to stop getting dragged, or the, uh, there's like a nail going through the finger, or I I can't I can't I just no no body horror nothing no I, I feel like I feel it like I'm like oh god like I my whole body cringes mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like ugh, ugh, it's the worst pain ever and so that's what makes this one so intense to me because he literally and I mean it's like a good three feet of him scratching into the wood yep ugh. so during this scene we get the four big toe And it's this very slow, suspenseful buildup with bass notes and synth that match up completely to our corpse walking. The orchestra comes in around after a minute of these really, really slow buildup, and it starts with this giant clash. This kind of makes a sound or emulates like when everything is traveling and it comes together. So they kind of broke the song up. And this part is actually when he's being pulled under the bed. So all of this chaotic crash comes together as Augie is being pulled. Um, There's random trombones that send out like really harsh notes with this slide effect. And it just sends this like chill and it literally almost makes you think of like the sound of the scraping nails with the slide and it is just oh like I'm cringing talking about it because it's so well done that it it just it hurts me it just hurts um this song does have a kind of playful tone to it though at certain points which matches up with the part where the corpse is looking for Augie. Um, And this part is where Augie thinks that he's safe to only be pulled under. So it's kind of like a fake, safe, playful area of the song. And then it gets crazy again as Augie is being pulled. This song builds up and has beats that match like our heart racing. And then everything just ends really, really abruptly. And this is, again, lined up perfectly when Augie has now been completely disappeared into the wall. Again, just, I can't say enough about Marco and Anna. They did such a good job just matching everything up to, like, every single second of the scene. Like, it perfectly aligns and it it truly makes the movie just a hundred times better so Stella and Ramon are trying to check on Augie they end up going to his house um, because he's not answering the radio and or the walkie-talkie when they move the bed because they're in his room looking for him this is when they see those scratch marks and they realize that he is now missing because of everything that's happening they feel like they have to tell Ruth and Chuck because they realize that it's going to be one by one um, or it's random and they have to figure out a way to save it. Um, Ruth doesn't believe them, which is Chuck's sister. And she's like, I have a musical to do, which is Bye Bye Birdie. Love that they play uh, paid homage to that awesome musical. Um, Chuck tries to burn the book. Of course, that doesn't work. 
Um, and then that's when they realize we don't really know much about Sarah, so maybe we need to do some research on her to fix all of this. Um, they go to the library to look through all of the old like newspaper articles and all the information, and they find some articles realizing that um, the news reported that it was the housekeeper and her daughter who apparently taught Sarah black magic. They also realized that the entire Bellows family completely disappeared from the era from the area within a year. Um, not that they died or were found dead, but just that they disappeared, which is really odd. Um, and as they're talking about all this research and all of this past history, this is when Stella realizes that all of the previous stories in Sarah's book match up to the names of her family members. And this realization leads us to our next story being written. It's very quickly writing. It's called The Red Spot. Um, and it talks about a girl getting bit on the face by a spider. And at first, Chuck thinks it's him because he has ketchup on his shirt. And he doesn't realize it's ketchup. So then they realize that it's Ruth. They end up going to run to the school. Um, during this time, we see Ruth in the mirror. And she has like this really, it looks like a bad pimple. Um, but it's growing. And then all of a sudden, we see like a leg pointing through. And then it expands loads into like millions of spiders everywhere and they end up saving her but Stella sees Sarah's shadow during this time and she knows that Sarah is responsible for all of this um, Ruth is taken away in critical condition and this is when they decide we're going to go find the housekeeper and talk to her this is a really important scene because they realize that Sarah didn't actually kill herself in the house like it was previously thought, but she died in a hospital. So the gang of kids decides, all right, we're going to head to the hospital and see what we can find. Um, on the way to the hospital, they're just kind of riding on the bus, and we see, again, lots of memorabilia from the 60s, but we get this really, really cool song called Hospital Visit. Um, the song plays for the most of the bus ride, and then as they are entering the hospital, um, there's this really haunting female vocal layered over um, what sounds like a steady pulse from our drums, um, and it makes it kind of sound like a heartbeat again. Um, the vocal gives it a very angelic but haunted vibe because they're incredibly high and sharp, um, and then we get the brass coming in, and it's a really major progression um, and it's again very high so it matches those vocals but then we have these strings and these really low minor tones that gives it just like this overall uneasy feeling in our song like things don't match up but they work I don't quite know how to say that in like a really good musical way, except like it's notes that you don't think would work together, but they do. But it leaves us like, ooh, that's weird feeling. The whole overall tone of this is it's like there's this hopeful, almost angelic vibe, like I said, but it's still really like cautious and scary. 
Um, and it just, it fits perfect because they have no idea what they're going to find at this hospital. It's a psych hospital. Um, they're on a bus and they have no idea if they're going to be able to save their friends or themselves. And like everything is just up in the air and they are terrified. And then this song, instead of the abrupt ending, like our other songs have had, this one does fade very slowly and it matches with those tones as her voice fades away and her voice is the last thing we hear in this song which is again just that creepy vibe which I mean going to an old psych hospital I'm not gonna lie I know Misa that maybe was it a psych hospital that y'all talked about going with your other friends when y'all did the podcast no 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 where was it San Antonio remind me I'm forgetting Oh, um, we went to a few hotels, like haunted hotels. Yes, 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 yes. Because I know some psych hospitals like are now like haunted areas. I am not interested in going to those. Would you go to one? Oh, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you're so much braver than I am, Lisa. <laughs> so yeah, this is this is not my jam. So I'm already like kind of like on edge watching this because psych hospitals, especially in the '60s, given like what they did to their clientele, um, just terrifying. Oh yeah, the healthcare back in the day. I mean, granted, it's it's not great now, but back then it was like resources were low, staff was low, people didn't care, there was no accountability. Uh, I mean, patients were running around naked, uh, doing whatever they wanted in the halls. Like, psych hospitals were not a good place to recover. They were a place to dump your embarrassing family members. And that is exactly what we find out happened to Sarah. The whole reason that she was supposedly taken to the hospital um, is because she was albino. And we find that out because Ramon and Stella find the records in the room um, called the Red Room, which is like our records and evaluation um, room or whatever. Since having gone to the house on Halloween, Chuck has been talking about this like reoccurring dream that he's having where he's in this room and it's like all red. And this lady is telling him this message about like this place is evil. Get out while you can. So as soon as he sees the sign for the red room, which is where the records are, he's like, no, I'm not going. And he freaks out. And Stella and Ramon are like, you stay here then and we'll go look for it. Of course, Chuck doesn't want to get in trouble for walking around. They leave Chuck, um, and of course, since they have kind of like broken into the area they're not supposed to be in to find these records, Chuck can't just stand still, so he ends up walking around, um, and he goes into a wrong area. The orderly see him. They end up chasing him. Um, simultaneously, Stella and Ramon have found like all the hospital records for Sarah. They're going through it. They see that, yes, her doctor was in fact the person who recommended her go to this hospital and all of the horrible things that they did to her. They also find a wax recording, which I didn't know what that was until this movie, but apparently was like an old way to record audio, um, before like tape recorders and things like that. Um, so they play it and they literally get to hear Sarah being tortured, being like electrocuted. They hear her brother asking her questions and Sarah saying like, no, it wasn't me. Um, it was the water. Um, and, you know, I didn't kill those kids. And the brother's like, you're lying. Tell us what we want to hear. And then all of a sudden her voice begins to change. And she says, fine, I'll tell you what you want to hear. 
at the same time, we see Chuck trying to hide from the hospital orderlies, and then the alarms are going off. The hospital alarms are red, so everything now is a red room. The entire hospital is red. Chuck is freaking out. Sarah begins to tell the dream or Chuck's story. And of course, Bella has the book. She opens it. And yes, it is in fact being written again right in front of them. And it is Chuck's story or Charles about his reoccurring dream. He turns around to see the pale lady. And she is this giant, like, not shapeless, but like really plump woman who has this weird grin, long hair, and she's very, very pale, like so pale you can see all of her veins and everything through her. Chuck is running. The pale lady is not fast, but then there becomes multiple of her. And she doesn't kill him, but she hugs him and literally absorbs his entire soul and body into hers. And he is now inside of her. And then she smiles and everything stops being red. And Stella and Ramon appear like seconds later. It's a really weird way to die, disappear. And it leaves me like, ugh. During this entire scene, we get the song Pale Lady. And this song starts with a very dark strong crescendo from the brass instruments so we hear like um, flutes trombones trumpets um, but they're very very low and dark sounding and then all of a sudden everything builds up to this really really loud like crazy mix of all the instruments and then they die out again then there's a steady like beat from the bass drum that almost gives everything like this marching tribal effect again and then as the pale lady is walking towards him and chuck realizes that he is being surrounded by the pale lady the flutes come in and it's like just total chaos with the scales going up and down and up and down and up and down. And they also perfectly match the sirens going off in the hospital. So that red light that's coming on and off. Um, and it's just, it's utter chaos. And the song matches it perfectly. Then this low brass stays really strong and vibrant and holds this awesome like minor note for a really long count. And then everything just dies out and it becomes silent again. And then we get that really quiet crescendo of the brass instruments as the pale lady is absorbing him. And then Again, it dies out, and that is when the pale lady is smiling, and then she disappears. It's a really chaotic song, and it completely matches just everything that's going on. Like, Chuck is in complete, 
utter disarray. The lights are going off. Like there's so much going on in the scene. And it is, it's a really cool song. And I love the way that they film this scene with all the different angles and the back and forth between Stella and Ramon and the pale lady. And then Chuck as he's trying to run and like literally being surrounded by the pale lady, like on all different hallways. Um, his death though was really weird to me. It, it's, it's, it's eerie. I don't like it. <laughs> I just don't like it. The hospital orderlies have found Stella and Ramon. And they're like, where's your little friend? And Stella and Ramon are just beside themselves because now it's just the two of them. They are taken to the police station. Stella tries to call her dad. We get a little backstory that basically Stella's mom ended up um, leaving Stella and her dad. And this is kind of foreshadowed earlier when Tommy makes a comment to Stella, but we don't get a lot of detail. Um, but Stella is apologizing to her dad about like if she dies or like she disappears, please know that I didn't leave you. And her dad is like crying and he's like, please don't blame yourself. Like that was just your mom. It wasn't you. Um, it's a really an emotional scene. And then we also learn that Ramon is a draft dodger. Um, they try to tell the police about the book. They give him the book. He's not listening. He literally has the book in front of him with all the names, and he's just really confused about everything, but he's really focused on the draft dodger um, and, like, that title for Ramon. Like, I guess that was a really big thing for people to not want to go to war in the 60s, um, and it was seen as, like, cowardice, like, to not serve your country, which... Mm -hmm you know, was a big deal. Um, so they tried to tell the cops they don't listen. And so they're like, fine, you two can stay here for the night. And then we'll see if you change your mind in the morning. Everybody's locked up. It's just the one cop. And then of course it starts raining and pouring. Um, and as he locks them up and walks away, he sees the book is now open. Um, and a new story is written in what looks like what ink. Just to be sure the cop touches it, sure enough, the ink smears. At the same time, his dog is staring at the random fireplace in the police station and starts growling. Stella and Ramon notice immediately. They start freaking out. They're like, what's going on? What's in the story? Please tell us. And we realize that this is going to be Ramon's story. A head drops down from the fireplace and our dog runs away and then the cop stands there and watches as all these other body parts just randomly drop down and then they magically merge together to make this weird jangly man who has this grotesque face and his body is distorted and crazy um, and like walks backward and he snaps the officer's neck and then he like basically crab walks, but really creepy with an upside down head over to Ramon and Stella and tries to get into the bars. Um, they are able to escape from the jail and Ramon knows that the jangly man is only going to be going after him because this is his story. So he tells Stella, go to the house, apologize, and then try to make this right. He ends up running the jangly man into like a between the car and a train, but the jangly man is able to break his body apart and rebuild. During this entire really creepy, honestly, the jangly man is like the worst monster for me because 
again, paying such good attention to detail and just and not just resorting to CGI. Jangly Man is actually a contortionist who appeared on America's Got Talent, and his name is Troy James. So the entire thing that we see of the way he's walking and his twisting and his upside down manner is actually done by a real live person, which makes it even creepier to me. I don't know why, but that just like, ugh, it's crazy. And it's really, really well done. The song that we hear for Jangly Man, which is called Our Jangly Car Chase, is really big on drums. So we get this really big intro with drums and timpanis behind. We do have some tubas that are playing very low. Again, those minor notes, which are those like creepy, basically anytime we hear any creepy sound in scores, assume it's a minor note. Um, and then we have trumpets that have a really strong presence in this song as well. The drums are the main focus with the snare being really prominent. We get these really big like hits in the song and that's when we see like the jangly man is trying to reach for Ramon. It also lines up perfectly when they are out of the gel and the jangly man is on top of the car chasing Ramon and he's banging on the car and all the glass. Um, there are horns and woodwinds that provide a swing sound um, that kind of it, it made me think of like a, a game of chase. Um, and this part lines up to when Ramon has finally reached the Bellows house and Jangly Man is following him and literally chasing him from room to room. And we see him jump and climb on like the staircase and the chandelier and like on tables. Um, and it, it just, it matches that kind of cat and mouse chase game. Everything gets really loud with all these really loud drums and timpanis and that trumpet and everything has a really loud, 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 loud sound, and then everything suddenly stops. This is because Stella, who is now, it's her turn for her story, Sarah has made her go back in time as Sarah, and so she gets to see what's going on in her whole family, and while Ramon is dealing with Jangly Man, Stella is being tortured by Sarah's family and does realize that Sarah was mistreated because she was albino, but her family was like poisoning the water and the mill with mercury. Like they were dumping things. They didn't care though, because that's how they made their money. And Sarah knew that and they didn't want Sarah to tell the truth. And then Stella tells Sarah that she is doing nothing but being just like her family. And she convinces Sarah to please don't kill me or Ramon. Don't take away the things that I care about the most. And I will tell your story. I will tell your true story and let everyone know that you are not the stories that they told. You're not what's in the newspaper. I will let the truth out. Stella does eventually agree and gives her a quill that takes Sarah's blood. So we know that it's like true. She can't break that truce. And the jangly man's body disappears at that loud crescendo. Then everything has died down. Stella and Ramon have beat their monsters. So Sarah has let Stella go. Ramon is no longer being chased by the jangly man. And they leave the Bellows house. Our movie ends with Ramon 
accepting that he has to go to Vietnam. So he says goodbye to Stella, who gives him a letter and says, like, please come home soon. At the same time, we hear Stella reading the story that she's written for the school paper about the true history of the Bellows family and how Sarah was not guilty. And she writes it with a real determination. She wants people to know like Sarah was innocent and her family did her wrong. She gets in the truck with her dad and we see that Ruth has recovered and is no longer in the hospital from all of the spider bites. She makes it known that they have a plan to bring back Augie and Chuck, which does lend its way for us to have a sequel. And we are then taken out by that cover version of our original song, Season of the Witch, by Lana Del Rey, which I really love this cover. I love Donovan's version, but I love this cover. So Lana Del Rey was specifically asked to sing this song. Um, and the reason that they asked her is because Del Toro stated that he admires Lana's music and that he just had this gut feeling that she would run away with Season of the Witch and that her voice and her tone would just completely transform it and match that kind of macabre feeling that Alvin was looking for when he wrote these stories. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Lana Del Rey is an American singer-songwriter, um, and she has that kind of glamour, like melancholy, pop culture, 1950s, 1960s era type music. Um, I love her songs. A lot of them deal with like sadness and tragic and are kind of not bluesy, but have that, you know, sad story. Like, I feel like her songs are very, like, storytelling songs. Um, she was raised in New York. Um, she had a lot of success from her viral videos on YouTube, including her debut called Video Games in 2011. I honestly didn't hear of her until uh, Born to Die. Uh, and I remember the original music video was like 12 minutes long it was like a whole saga that was a lot for me but I loved the song mm -hmm. um and then of course Summertime Sadness um Young and Beautiful which was on another great film um The Great Gatsby um and she's most known again for just her very like 50s and 60s style of dressing and her singing also matches that and it lends its way to a great cover of Season of the Witch. Um, since I talked about it earlier, I don't really have much else to talk about for a Season of the Witch cover. And that ends our movie. That was awesome. Great job. Thank you. I know it's Fast and Furious. Um, I do have some fun facts I wanted to share, if that's okay. Please. All right, so I did want to talk about um, the stories that were specifically used in our movie. Um, the ones that specifically were used in this movie are Harold, The Big Toe, The Red Spot, and Jangly Man, and The Pale Lady. Um, we did see a mix 
of characters being brought together for the big toe. The character that they actually used was um, the drawing from Andrew for the haunted house, um, but everyone else was related to their stories. Um, some of the characters were created specifically for this movie. Some were taken, um, like their names were taken from the original books. The Jangly Man is actually thought of to be a mix of Mitai Doty Walker um, and not the Jangly Man. The character who played, I'm sorry, the actor who played the character of the Toeless Corpse is Javier Botet, who is a well-known actor um, who has Marfan syndrome. Um, I actually had to look this up, but this is a genetic disorder that makes his body really, really long and thin. So what we saw of the character that he's playing is actually his natural body, and he is known for playing those types of creatures and monsters and characters in movies. Um, he's played Slenderman. He's also been in uh, Game of Thrones. And he's also been in some uh, Del Toro horror films, as well as the Creep Six Hobo in It. Yeah, so that's his real um, his real body. Um, and he is making it work. <laughs> All right, so when we do see Stella flipping through Sarah's book, we see um, Alvin's stories, The Wendingo, which, of course, is based on a true story, Strangers, um, The Cat's Paw, and The Attic. We also see that she's writing something. Um, like her own story. Um, Ramon looks at it and it's called um, The Whistling Room. And this is actually a real story by William Hope Hodgson. Um, and her room is covered with like shout outs to obscure horror films from the 1950s um, with movies like Beast from Haunted Cave, Mesa of Lost Women, Frankenstein's Daughter, and Indestructible Man. The stories that were included in the movie, I wanted to give a little bit of background information about that. So Harold is actually an Austrian Swiss legend um, that came from the third book. Um, and it is a little bit different um, in that story. It's two farmers who are cruel to their scarecrow and they, I guess, take their anger out because they hate this other farmer. Um, but they do end up, um, their bodies are not turned into scarecrows, but they're like dried out in the sun and their skin is used for the scarecrows, not the whole body. So that one's a little different. Um, Big Toe is a classic story that uh, Alvin heard from a sailor and he made it a little bit scarier. Um, there is another variation from this from Pally Poe, which I don't know if you remember that book from growing up. Mm, doesn't sound familiar. Okay, that one's about like this weird creature that has a tail and they take his tail and make it into a stew. Um, that one I do remember, but I will send you that one also. Um, Red Spot comes from an urban legend, which is the bite of the spider. And then the dream and other stories came from a 19th century autobiography that he found, which included Pale Lady. Um, and these came from the autobiography of Augustus Hare. And he was known, of course, for stretching the truth. But since it was an autobiography, um, these were written as like his real life happenings. Yeah. And I think that is it 
me. Oh, I did have one fun fact about um, how Anna got chosen to work with Marco. Um, and she said, like, this was one of her first movies ever. Um, she did, like, a side project, but it was not notable. Um, but basically, she was taking a class, and um, in walks in Marco to teach the class. She was beside herself. He showed them a scene and told everyone to write a score for the scene. And hers was the only one who he didn't basically shit on. He was like, you know, you have some potential. Um, you know, maybe we can work together. And of course, she's like awestruck because this is Marco Beltrami. You know, like she's a huge fan. Um, and she's like, oh, yeah, for sure. Like, you know, taking it as like, oh, you know, like, let's let's catch up, you know, kind of like bullshit talk. Well, no, she went home to London and he literally emails her and he's like, hey, I have a project I want you to work on. Where are you? She took the next flight home to L.A. and it's this film. He asked her to work on her with it. Um, so, yeah, really cool. Like, isn't that crazy? Just randomly teaches her and yeah, <laughs> live in the dream. Okay, and so that ends my first episode of Spooky Season. Very cool. Awesome job. Thank you, thank you. I did want to talk about some of my sources. I used quite a bit. Um, I used Forbes.com, Rolling Stone, IMDb, What Song, Wikipedia, Business Insider, Vulture, Insider.com, Screen Rant, Mental Floss, YouTube um, from Found Fit, and the film is now movie bloopers and extra as well as ranker.com. Perfect. Okay, so guys, that ends our first episode of Spooky Season. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed. We hope we introduced you to some very cool films and soundtracks. Yeah, and uh, very soon we will have our Tim Burton appreciation episode, so look out for that. So excited. I'm excited. Yeah. Yay, so excited. This is just such a happy time of the year for me. <laughs> I just love this time. Awesome, guys. Thanks for sitting with me through a uh, score. Uh, scores are so hard. And I know Misa has one up her sleeve. She uh, foreshadowed that yes, uh, earlier in her part of episode one of Spooky Season. So I'm excited to have that drop. Um, but other than that, guys, we hope you have a great night. And check out the Instagram. We will have the blog up soon. Don't forget to listen to us on your favorite music streaming site, except for Tidal. And stay spooky. Awesome. Thank you guys for listening. We appreciate you. Bye.